0: First speaker this afternoon is going to be David S. David?
1: Hi, my name is David S. and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. You know, the people here in Vancouver require a great deal of their speakers, so I want to set the record straight we were required to go through a creative writing experience and to title our talk. So the title of my talk today, for anyone who's trying to get CME credit on this or something, is Looking Through the Eye of a Needle. Hopefully I will um, reveal to you just exactly what that means. But as I was sitting outside looking for some inspiration as to what the content of my talk should be, I happened upon a wonderful little thing laying on the floor next to where I was sitting. And and I'm holding it up for you all. You might have seen this. It says how to go out and have a good time. That's what I used to think it was what going out to another city and, and messing around was all about. How to go out and have a good time. I used to think I knew. Now I'm sure that I didn't know. And so... Perhaps with that introduction, I will talk about uh, what I used to be like, what happened, and hopefully touch on what I'm like t- today. and hopefully I'll have something that can help somebody else here. I'm looking around, I see that I don't see a lot of red dots which uh, represents newcomers, so most everybody here is an old hand. Um, I have believe it or not, I have been asked to speak at other places before and to tell my story, but I'm never asked back again, so listen carefully. You know, my first IDAA meeting was in Chicago in 1982, and I was intimidated at that point and very uncomfortable. I was early in my sobriety, and I was just delighted with the experience and, and how I and my family were welcomed into IDAA. I think this is a wonderful, wonderful group, and uh, we then came to Vancouver the next year, and... Uh, met elmer and sylvia and fred and jerry and and they said you know the next time we have a meeting in vancouver we'd like you to speak i said oh that'd be great because you know i'm thinking you know i've got a couple of years in this program i got it down obviously everybody wants to hear what i have to say and here we are eight years later and this is the first time i've spoken at idaa and it's interesting how it works you see i couldn't take a drink or a drug for those eight years because I had a talk to give. And in order for me to be looking good when I gave my talk, I had to be clean and sober that entire time. Now, I am taking invitations for speaking engagements in the 21st century because I'm a person that needs a lot of help. I found that I'm a very goal-oriented person. And if I've got a goal... I can usually get there. I found out early in my life that I really didn't have any motivating goals. I was very upset early on as a youth when I realized I didn't have a horse to ride to school like the kids on TV. And so I had some of my early resentments. I was a person that drank at an early age. It's interesting. I first got drunk on wine at a Passover Seder when I was about four years old. Climbed up on the table and sang, Take Me Out to the Ball Game as my Seder contribution. And everybody talked about it. It became family lore. Oh, I remember the time David got up and sang, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. So that was my first experience with the crowd, the booze, and the action. So I looked forward every year. I was a yearly drinker. I drank once a year for many years to that time. And they tried try to give me the grape juice and I'd sneak and get the wine. So when I was goal-oriented, I could get it. And I always got where I wanted to go with drugs. And that was to a different place inside. I just had, we, we we were very fortunate. We just came off a beautiful cruise to Alaska. And we were sitting down at the formal dinner uh, the other evening. And we had some grape juice and wine glasses for the formal dinner. And my son, you know, it's non-alcoholic wine. My son, the 12-year-old, grabs the glass, chugs down the whole thing, pours himself another one and chugs down the whole thing. And we had a little discussion at the table about alcoholism and drinking alcoholically you know it's wonderful um mirror imaging is such a beautiful thing and i'm so fortunate today my son is 12 years old when he was initially born my next door neighbor growing up who for some reason had some disturbing thoughts about me and how i took care of his daughter and his son in terms of leading them along the wonderful path um we wa- I walked into a restaurant, and he sa- and my son had just been born, or was a few years old, and, and I walked in, and I said, oh, hi, Dr. Barrett, and he looked up at me, and he said, ha, 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 I hear you got one just like you, and I do, and so it's great, because it helps me in terms of seeing myself all over again. Of course, we talk a lot about alcoholism in our family today, and we talk a lot about the program, and we talk a lot about recovery. Because we're trying to carry the message of recovery to our family. I'm sorry Martha couldn't be here today because I was looking forward to hearing what she had to say. <laughs> but our family is very involved in the recovery experience because we needed to be. We were very much involved in the non-recovery experience at one time. To make, to speed things right along, I, you know, it's important to, I wanted to say this, you know, early on in AA, they kept saying, if you come around enough times, you'll finally hear your story. And I kept coming, and I kept coming, and I never heard my story. And I kept coming, and I never heard my story. And I did my first, fourth step with my sponsor, and he said, gee, I've never heard any of that kind of stuff before. It was a disturbing thing, my fifth step with my sponsor. And, and I, thank God for IDAA, because I met a lot of people who are, who have been down low in their disease and have come up high in their recovery, and I've been able to relate to their stories, and I hope I can carry the message of where I was. I drank socially, I thought, which meant you got drunk and acted foolishly on weekends. And then into college, I went to the University of California, Berkeley, not out of choice so much, but I was rejected from the Ivy League schools because of the way I acted in high school. I had grades, I had scores, but I just didn't behave properly. So behaving properly has always been a problem for me. I think I was an uncomfortable kid. You know, I've, I've talked to other people and they say, oh, I was the happiest guy in the world and I just drank and it just, uh, gosh, I just got alcoholism. I wasn't. I was kind of like upset with things. Uh, you know, my parents said things like, uh, oh, you, you'll never be satisfied with anything. And the other thing I remember is you can't be trusted with anything. So those two messages I carry on today. And sometimes I say to myself, you know, you better be careful because you can't be trusted with anything and you better be grateful because otherwise you're not going to be satisfied with anything. And those those are lessons that I've learned to to kind of uh, inculcate and try to make positives out of. Anyway, I discovered drugs at Berkeley early there. It didn't take me too long. And there progressed a romance with various drugs and uh I remember something the reason you know Martha said something that was wonderful. She said the first time she ever shot drugs, she knew she was born to shoot drugs. When I was a teenager, I used to have dreams. this is so interesting. I used to have dreams of being a junkie and wearing black shirts and black turtlenecks and black sunglasses and hanging out in New York City, leaning against walls and alleyways and stuff like that and i and then I have these other dreams about. Doctor that recovers from drug addict, from drug addiction and becomes, you know, great humanitarian. And, and I really, you know, I think that I had those thoughts as a, as a high school person. So I was very much afraid of, of drugs and um, I noticed that people that shot speed in college dropped, grew, grew hair very quickly, got thin, but dropped out of school. So I tried to avoid that and, and I also noticed that people that took LSD on a daily basis often ended up out of school. So I tried to control my drug use throughout college so that I might go on to medical school. Well, I was so beat up by the time I was a senior in college, I dropped out of, uh, I withdrew all my applications to medical school, and I said, I'm going to be, you know, just a hippie, because that's about all I could handle at that time. And I ended up going into um, the theater, into acting, and and I forayed into that, and um, I ended up in New York City acting, and I became a junkie. And and I noticed that uh, it was very hard for me to emote on stage when I was stoned on heroin. This was a problem. And oftentimes my character didn't call for scratching and stuff like that. Um, But I tried to work it in. Uh, It's kind of funny. And my sister came up to visit me and she said, my God, David, what's happened to you? You know, she took me out to Jones Beach to try and help me out, and I'm in the back of the car snorting a little heroin. She said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just snorting a little heroin. She said, well, what happened to your meditation? Because I was doing transcendental meditation before that. And I said, oh, heroin's much better because it gets you to the same place, but it's much quicker and it's more consistent. So that was my denial at that point. Anyway, finally, um, my disease drove me out of New York City. And I ended up in California, and I ended up, and I went through methadone clinics and, and shooting cocaine and, and shooting dope, and, and it just it was a real mess. You know, my life was a mess. And I first, the first AA meeting I was taken to, I had a friend, and they said, well, you ought to go to an AA meeting. It would really help you. I went there. I was so nervous I had to go out and shoot dope afterwards. It made me very uncomfortable. And eventually, I realized this was not a good thing for me. And I also realized that uh, I had done all this pre-medical work. I wanted to be a doctor. And I said, this is your last chance. You're getting older. You've been out of school for a few years. And if you're going to be a doctor, now's the time to do it. And so I went back into school. I used to do this periodically. I did this major cleanup. We're going to do this major health food thing and major cleanup and the meditation and the yoga. And we're going to get it right this time. And we're going to stick with it because we got a goal. See, the goal was to get into medical school. So I did it and I got it right. And I, I got into medical school. And, you know, I'd been there a little while, and, you know, it was so easy when you're straight. You know, and easy. I, gee, I needed some ops. I need some action. So, first came the cigarettes, then came the booze, then came the drugs, then came the blah, right? Anyway, I ended up shooting dope through medical school, through internship, through residency. And uh, my father told me if he could do it all over again, he'd be an ophthalmologist. Because they got it made, Uh They don't, you know, all the reasons he said. I said, okay, Dad, that sounds good to me. So I was going to be an ophthalmologist, hence the needle and the eye. All right, so we've got that explained. (laughs) Folks, I'm not a professional. (laughs) Anyway, I ended up going into ophthalmology. had a horrible time with my residency. I was sick. I started out with hepatitis the first week I was there. You know, on and on, and that's down the line. Um, but I survived, and I made it through. And, um, and then I realized at the end of my ophthalmology, I didn't think I was prepared to go into practice. I better do a fellowship. Yeah, I knew this education stuff worked. It kept you in the same place. It kept you going. And there was a goal. And so I finished my fellowship. And then I went into private practice. And there was no goal. And I was in practice a full seven weeks before I was kicked out. <laughs> Finally, my wife was very kind. She called up uh, the person I was working for and said, "You know, David's uh, stealing Demerol and cocaine and shooting dope." Uh, this was on like a Sunday night. Uh-huh. She said, "Will you have him here at eight o'clock in the morning to talk about this?" Well, this was obviously a problem for me. I should backtrack a minute. I had a sponsor. He said, "If you screw up again, you're going to go into treatment." I had tried AA. I had tried sixteen months in AA, and I had actually used AA in my fellowship to kind of get going. Actually, in my residency, I had my—I was twelfth stepped by Renew. They were kind enough. If that's the Regional Enforcement Narcotics Unit. They called me up and they said, uh, we'd like to talk to you about a few prescriptions. I said, oh, yeah, about how many is that? And they said, about 350. So I went, and, you know, the, the head of my hospital said, you know, we need to talk to you about this. And they said, uh, I said, gee, you know, should I get a lawyer? And he said, gee, I don't think so, not unless you have something to hide. And I said, oh, okay, no problem. So I immediately went out there and called a lawyer immediately. <laughs> my lawyer <laughs> said you better get in touch with some doctors in recovery. So he got in touch with two doctors locally in the Cincinnati area who met with me at about 10.30 at night. Why did they meet with me at 10.30 at night? I could hardly stay awake by 10.30 at night. I was usually passed out. So I said, I've got to stay together this tonight. I'm not going to get high tonight. So I went and I met these guys, and they're talking to me about AA. And I had had a little bit of experience with AA, so I knew some of the ropes, and they're telling me, You know, one guy's saying, you know, uh, you're sick. you got a disease. And I said, well, you know, maybe uh, I think we can work something out here. Because uh, <laughs> I'm looking at four counts of one to seven years, and uh, my lawyer is telling me to get in good with these guys. And I said, okay. So they're getting a little frustrated with me for some reason. First of all, when the waitress comes up, I, I order an Irish coffee. You know, I'm at a little bar. I said, you guys don't mind if I have an Irish coffee now, do you? They let me do whatever I want. Halfway through this conversation, and I guess they're getting upset with me. They're saying maybe I need a hospital, maybe I need this, and I'm arguing with them. The first guy says, "He says you're high right now." I said, "I am not." Now this I really got my dander up. I said, "I am not high. You know, I smoked a couple of hits off a joint. I had a half a Quaalude, one snort of cocaine, and this Irish coffee. I'm not high." He said, "You need to go in a hospital." Well, for this I had gone to medical school. I knew as soon as a doctor tells you something you don't like, you say. That may be your opinion, but I personally would like a second opinion. He said, "Okay, you're an asshole, too. (laughs) That guy's my sponsor now. Anyway, I tried to do it in AA and failed. I tried my way in AA and failed. And... Seven weeks into private practice, it was show up at 8 a.m. in the morning to talk about, you know, stealing Demerol and cocaine, shooting dope in the office. That didn't appeal to me because uh, my attorney said, if you know, if you get in any trouble, they can always bring back these other charges. So I called my sponsor, and he said, you're going in the hospital right now. So they put me in a hospital. And I eventually ended up down at Doug Talbot's place in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, where I was able to hear stories like my own, where I was able to hear things I could relate to. And they kept me there a long time. They kept me there an extra month. We had this group called Waiters, Worst Addicts in Treatment. I was having particularly a hard time with the second step. Unfortunately, fortunately, one, one day, two, two months into treatment, they were talking about shipping me out to one of these year-long places, which seemed like a death sentence. Of course, when I went into treatment, I told my sponsor, I said, you know, you're killing me. You're trying to kill me with this. Because that's what it felt like to me. I said, if I'm not going to have any fun, what's the use of living? It says in the book, we insist on having a good time. Fortunately, that's become true for me. So anyway, I was having trouble getting this recovery business down and getting this coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I had two problems there. I couldn't come to believe. minister came in. He said, I think you're having trouble with the second step. I said, I am. He gave me a little pamphlet. Uh, and in it, it said, if you're having trouble with faith, say this little prayer. I believe, I believe, I believe, help thou my disbelief. He suggested that I say that every morning before I lift my head off the pillow. The first thing I do, I believe, I believe, I believe, help thou my disbelief. I did that. And something started to change. It's not like a lightning rod, went, lightning went off or anything like that. But something started to change for me. I had another problem with the word restore. You know, a lot of people come to this program and they say, I took offense at the fact that they said they were going to restore me to sanity as if I was insane. I took offense at this idea of restore. If you've never been there, how can you be restored to sanity? So I knew I was one of these hopeless cases that they talked about and how it works. But fortunately, through a, a kind and gracious higher power, I found out that I could be restored to a sanity, a sanity that was free of the compulsion to drink and to use, free of the compulsion to shoot dope, free of the compulsion to lie, to cheat, to steal. It was important for me to to do the third step a lot of times. In fact, I used to do it every morning. I would get down on my knees and repeat the third step prayer from the big book. And it says in there that... Uh, In one part, take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. Of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. I was always very concerned about that. You know, I hadn't had that many difficulties. We're wonderful people. You know, I had hepatitis. I still have hepatitis. i got abnormal liver. I've been thrown out of this, that, and the other thing. I had four felony charges, you know. I had had no difficulties as far as I could tell. I was scared, you know. Then it was uh, early in, in treatment. I mean, early in recovery, you know, I had to make a big hit. I had to get back on it. I'd been out of circulation a long time. I was way behind the eight ball. Better get rich. Better do something quick. So I almost went bankrupt on a real estate transaction. And I said, oh, that's my difficulty. You know, there's this, that, and the other thing. And I said, you know, maybe the reason I'm not speaking at IDAA is because I don't have anything heavy to talk about. I've heard some wonderful stories up here. You know, just things that just, I cry. I listen to tapes in my car and I'll be driving. And I'll just start crying at some of the things that I hear. It's so moving. But they say in this program, God doesn't give you anything more than you can handle. And He's been, (laughs) he, He realizes the precariousness, I guess, of my position because I haven't had to handle that much yet. But I work diligently at my daily program. A daily program of prayer. Daily program of meditation. That transcendental meditation has come back again. You know, I've been doing it daily. For over ten years. And I feel better. My life is good today. My family is happy today. We're able to communicate with one another. We're able to experience intimacy. I was, uh, you know, the only thing that works for me is going through the steps. Going through all of the steps. And going through the steps again. And going through the steps again. And I have found that that is how it works for me. And working with others, working with newcomers, sharing whatever it is that I might have with, with, with some, with a newcomer. We started a, we have a, a meeting at the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting now for the last two years. We've had a session, a scientific session at the noontime uh, part of the first day of the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting, where myself and a couple of other guys have gotten up and talked about alcoholism and its impact on uh, ophthalmologists and their families, and trying to carry that message to other people. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to work with other people that have helped me. You know, when I came in, I went at first. I went to Hazelden, They were so smart. They threw me out after two weeks because I wasn't. I, I was a bad influence on the ward, um, and. It was interesting. There was another doctor in treatment there. And you get a, a big book. And people sign little things in your big book. And this was a surgeon from Kansas City. And he wrote in there. Today, you know, he'd heard a little bit of my story. And he said, you are a disgrace to the profession of medicine. George M. And you know, I believe that Because it was true. It really was. I I was a disgrace to the profession of medicine. And when I was in treatment, the guys were saying to me, you know, I hope you can find something that motivates you, that gives you some reason to live, because I don't think you're going to make it if you don't have that. Well, my wife and I have been blessed with some beautiful children. And whenever I wasn't getting the message, they would bring up my children. And it would just tear me apart. And I've been very blessed that I've had people in my family to carry the message for. And I've been very blessed that IDAA has allowed me to speak today to try and carry the message to to people here. And uh, I just hope that I've said something that might touch someone that might help in some way. Thank you.
2: I certainly appreciated hearing David's story
1: uh, next I'd like to introduce to you Mary Stewart M from British Columbia
2: thanks Lynn I'm Mary Stewart I'm an alcoholic Well, for some of you this might be a bit of a repeat because I was um speaking in Seattle last summer at the uh doctors meeting and told my story there. <coughs> and it was Elmer who's unfortunately not here with us at this conference who had asked me to speak there and uh Elmer's had played a fairly large impact in my life um recently, which I'll get on to uh later on. Um I bet you're probably thinking by the title of my talk, Surrender on a sailboat, that it probably has something to do with sex. <coughs> <laughs> i guess in a, in a way it does <laughs> um it's funny ann was speaking last night and she was talking about uh sailing uh on a sailboat with three other alcoholics at some point in her uh drinking career and that's uh exactly what had happened to me but again i'll get onto that a little while later but it was funny to hear somebody else with, with the same type of uh story there about, about sailboats i started drinking when i was an infant my uh Parents are both alcoholics and my mom was uh, a pretty crazy drinker all of her life. And she uh used to tell great stories about uh when I was uh just after I was born, she would always take me with them whenever they went out because she'd be drinking during the time and breastfeeding me and she knew that we would both sleep for a long period of time the next day. So we'd you know, she was breastfeeding me while she was out drinking, then I would be hung over along with her and Apparently one point I actually slept for 24 hours after one of these evenings, so I was introduced to alcohol at a pretty young age, and through my childhood, my father was a general in the Canadian Army, and there was an awful lot of required socializing and entertaining in my family, and there was a lot of uh, sherry parties and things like this, and my uh, brothers and I used to make sure that we were around uh, emptying the, uh, the, uh, the liqueur glasses and the sherry glasses afterwards, and I... I enjoyed all of that but um as I got into adolescence I um I was more and more exposed to my parents illness and their alcoholism and particularly my mother and uh I look exactly like my mother and uh, behave in so many ways like her there's just no denying that I was a a replica a genetic copy of my mother and her drinking was really frightening and really caused me a lot of pain and a lot of shame when I was an adolescent so I made a decision sometime in adolescence that I was never going to be like her, and in order not to be like her, obviously I I had to make sure that I never drank. However, my life was unmanageable in a lot of other ways because of the dysfunctional family, because of all these feelings that uh, Ian Forrester uh, uh, and his wife Gail talked about this morning. And um, so I, uh, I sort of mismanaged my life in a lot of other ways and uh, had a need to be perfect, had a need to be in control, and had a need to uh, to um, make a lot of mistakes. When I was 18, I uh, made the mistake of getting pregnant, and um, the uh, father of my baby happened to be in military college, and at that time, it was uh, not allowed for um, fellows in military college to be married, and at that time, abortions were illegal. This was in 1967, and... Um, I was really lost, and here were these two parents who were uh, sort of upper class in this in the uh, city of Kingston, Ontario, a very conservative town, and uh, uh, there was nothing to do but to put me in hiding for a year. And so I was literally locked away in the uh, third floor of my parents' house uh, throughout the uh, pregnancy, and uh, for the first five months of my daughter's life, we were both locked away. My husband finished military college. Everybody thought that I was off in Ottawa going to teacher's college. And uh, I stayed home, subjected to my mother's uh, drunken tirade um, on a daily basis, and was literally immersed in shame. By um, the time I got out of that situation, I had regressed emotionally a great deal. I was scared of my own shadow. I was... Uh, certain that when I went out on the street um, that people were staring at me. Um, I looked about 14 with a little baby and so people did stare at me. (laughs) And uh, it was really, really tough. Um, I suppressed my feelings. I was unable to even know that I was angry and uh, hurting a lot. I just became quite depressed. And uh, I was quite suicidal, but I had this baby that uh, needed to be brought up and brought in the world. And I kind of thought once my new husband and baby and I got off on our own, everything would be all right, you know? Sort of Cinderella. But of course it wasn't. And uh I had married uh an alcoholic also. And uh, I still had not drunk since I was a child. I was still terrified of alcohol. It was all around me and it was causing me so much pain that uh I was determined not to be like my mom or my husband or my dad. However... Um, I talked about sex earlier, and it's not surprising that the first time you have sex, if you get pregnant and then get locked away for a year, you tend to have a few inhibitions about sex. And, and I certainly had those. <laughs> so after a few years of marriage and not a not a great time in the bedroom and uh, a lot of unhappiness, um, I decided that probably the solution to my uh uh, frigidity would be alcohol. You know, maybe if I drank, that would, uh, allow me to relax a little bit and, uh, give my husband what he needed and get the pressure off me and maybe everything would be okay. So, uh, that's when I really take my, took my first drink knowingly. And, uh, and, and as, as an attempt to alter my feelings. And, uh, it certainly altered my feelings, but, um alcohol and I just don't mix. It's like, uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde reaction. And I just went quite berserk under the influence of alcohol. Um, It didn't help in the bedroom. (laughs) I just got really crazy and really sick and made an absolute fool out of myself. And uh, even my husband at that point never tried to get me to drink anymore. So I carried on and I, I uh, you know, most of my adult life then was really as a dry drunk. And um, when I did drink, it was always under those circumstances where I felt uncomfortable. If I was socially uncomfortable, if I felt that uh, I wasn't going to be long, whether it was in the bedroom or at a social gathering or something, I, I would drink because somebody would suggest it and uh, I just wouldn't be able to say no. And uh, I would always end in disaster. I would just be go crazy. And uh, go through months of shame afterwards—a kind of odd story. So I just lived in terror of alcohol. I didn't know how to drink, how to live without it, and I didn't know how to live with it either. Well, eventually, um, um, you know, being the child of two alcoholic parents and having a lot of shame and having a need to be perfect and being married to uh, an alcoholic, I uh, finally decided that I could either choose to continue to be depressed and kill myself or do something about my life. So, um, naturally, I decided I would uh, save the world and become a doctor. So, I went back to school once my three, well, this time I had three children by the time I was 22, and um, uh I went back to university or, or started university and eventually got into medical school as my children became nursery school age and school age, so we were all going to school together, and that's when I got into my other addiction, which is work, and um and I just worked my through, way through all the pain um I learned how to detach from my feelings. I learned how to cope with my incredibly unhappy marriage and uh sort of isolate myself emotionally through work and uh I had a need to be the best at what I did both in in the undergraduate years and in, in medicine and i I really tried hard to do that. I was incredibly unhappy towards the end of medical school my hard power started to finally um put some things in my life that started to make a difference, and these things were people who were in recovery. And uh, a couple of gentlemen, one by the name of Mac Cheater, who many of you probably know, was a, a circuit speaker and had worked in the New York office for a number of years, but came from Winnipeg, which is where I was living at this time. And uh he, uh, he was placed in my life and took me under his wing. And um, sort of treated me like a friend of AA. You know, here was this doctor who uh, knew she couldn't drink because it made her crazy, but had a need to to help alcoholics. Um, Mac, of course, knew I was alcoholic, but I didn't. And uh, he had me going to some AA meetings, and finally I couldn't uh, live with the fact that I was going to AA meetings but wasn't an alcoholic and uh, decided to leave. Um... Then I had a couple of other people, there's a physician by the name of Bill J. in Winnipeg who I don't think made it here uh for the conference and uh he um taught me a lot about alcoholism, a lot about myself and a lot about spirituality. I uh, had joined the military in, in uh medical school so that I could pay for my education, uh having a need not to be be dependent upon my husband. And uh after graduation the uh military um gave me the job of being the uh, medical consultant to an alcohol rehab clinic. And so, <laughs> again, another thing placed in my life. I was being intervened on in so many ways, and I uh, just didn't realize it. And uh, they sent me down to uh, the U.S. Naval Hospital in Long Beach, and I'm sure there's other people who've been there. And uh so I went through their professional professional training. And... What I did is I just learned to pick up the principles of the 12-step program, pick up the principles of AA. Um, I surrounded myself back in Winnipeg with re- people in recovery. I tried to practice the 12 steps all by myself in my own life uh, because I knew I needed it in order to keep sane. And I wanted so much to have what these other people had. But how could I possibly be an alcoholic because I didn't drink anymore? even though I knew that I couldn't drink and I knew that I had that Tradition 3, the desire not to drink, my denial was so powerful, I think out of a need not to be like my mother, you know, not to sort of be able to face that. Um, So I just sort of quietly tried to practice my own program. It was fairly easy to do that in the military because the uh, rest of the staff in the alcohol rehab clinic were all in recovery, and we had regular staff sort of support meetings, which were... Run like twelve step twelve step re- meetings, and so that became my support group and uh, I used one of the counselors there as a pseudo sponsor and uh life was sort of tripping along, not doing too badly but i was uh, by this time I'd left my husband and uh, I'd discovered uh that I wasn't frigid anymore, and uh, I ran into my my next addiction, which was sex and men, and that became a big part of my life, and that was the the next thing that I learned to use as a as a release, you know, to suppress my feelings and to, to make me feel okay. But again, just like uh, alcohol, just like uh, work, um, sex was just something that left me with more shame and more um, guilt. Um, well, I left the military because I got burnt out, <clears throat> trying to fix everybody else without attending to myself. And... Uh, I began to realize that I was living vicariously off of other people. I was working so hard at trying to treat people who were alcoholic or chemically dependent and I was like a parasite. I was trying to get well off their recovery and not doing anything about myself. And uh, I've seen this often in a lot of other people who work in the field or even are in the AA themselves and are busy sponsoring a lot of other people and this is what I was doing. I left, uh, the military and took what looked like a real cushy job with, uh, uh, an air, a national airline as, uh, medical director, you know, sort of corporate medicine, doing a lot of employee assistance work and, uh, lots of great fringe benefits and an incredibly isolated, lonely position. And I left that support group that I had in the military in the alcohol rehab clinic and I was on my own now. And, uh, it was a frightening place to be. It was August of 1986. I left the military in July. I was in Winnipeg, and I came out here to Vancouver and <laughs> agreed to go sailing with three other alcoholics. is <laughs> where I was laughing at Anne's story last night. I mean, this is the insanity and my own denial that I would choose to go on a holiday sailing, which is totally isolated, out in the water, with three other alcoholics, and me trying to stay dry and trying to stay sober. Well, of course, I couldn't do that. At one point in the sailing trip, they ran out of soda pop. I was thirsty, and I decided to drink. And uh, you know, I just again made a fool out of myself. I got quite plastered. I behaved really inappropriately. Um, scared the life out of all of them. And uh, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, I finally sort of was able to admit that I was powerless over alcohol myself—not just over alcoholics in my life, but over alcohol myself and um did belong in AA for me. Uh after that trip I came back to Winnipeg and all these people who had been placed in my life, uh Mac I forgot to talk about Mac but he had died a couple of years before and uh of cancer. But there were other people that that uh had been left in my life uh who were in AA and they were just waiting for me and I went back, told them my experience and they all had a good laugh, and they said, "Well, it's about time. You know, we've been waiting for you to figure it out." And uh, so I finally joined AA for me, and um, my life has been totally different ever since then. And uh, proceeded to um, to work on the steps and to do it honestly, not to do it quietly, not to do a step four all by myself at home, and not to do a step five all by myself. But to do it uh, within the uh, AA group and uh, with the people who who I needed to share with and uh, needed to get honest with. Um, anyway, subsequently to this, I uh, was transferred by uh, Air Canada to Vancouver here, and uh, work became really unmanageable again, just like it had in the in the military. I was overloaded with work and responsibility and expectations. These large corporations, whether it's the uh, military or whether it's a and large airline or something like that are just like big dysfunctional families. And for somebody who is a dysfunctional codependent person who has a need to be perfect, who has a need to be in control, and who has a need to do everything themselves, um, of course, they just love to have people like me. And uh, naturally, I you get burnt out um, because I, I just don't know how to say no. So I was in this predicament, and also during this time, my my father died, um, never having been sober, and my mother was left alone, and uh, not too long after he died, my mother had a stroke and um, was uh, paralyzed and became um, very bitter and very angry and probably on the worst dry drunk you'd ever imagine, and for about 15 months, I was... Uh, running over to vancouver island uh, across the way every weekend to take care of my mom and her home and and uh, then back here to work and traveling all over the country with uh with the airline and uh i was at that stage when uh, elmer asked me to speak in uh, seattle last year and uh, that was a very moving experience not speaking but just being there and being uh, surrounded by so many people in in aa and in 12 step programs and in recovery and uh I uh, I suppose I seeing all that recovery around me and yet feeling all this agitation inside me being active in AA um, and yet having a life that was unmanageable and not knowing how to deal with it I um, found myself on my knees in my hotel room just praying to my higher power for direction and that was probably the first time that I really did that honestly because I didn't know what the direction was I didn't know. What the solution was to this this problems with my uh, my mother and her sort of uh, slow but uh, uh, painful terminal illness. So I didn't know what the solution was for this job that was totally unmanageable. And um, about three days after Seattle, Elmer phoned me and asked me if I would take over his practice because he was moving to Maui. Many of you know Elmer, and uh, he's in Maui and uh, apparently really enjoying himself there and just practicing regular medicine, out-of-addiction medicine. At at first I told him I wasn't interested. It sounded like an even more unmanageable setup that uh, he had than what I was dealing with at work. Um, But Elmer, being the persistent fellow he is, uh, called me back, and I agreed to go and talk to him about it. And there was just something about the way it had happened, just like so many other people or situations have been placed in my life. That I came to realize that somehow my higher power was telling me that this is what I needed to do and uh and so I've done that, and it's um this year, I think is my year to really understand what step seven is about, and for me, my step seven is learning about humility and asking my higher power to remove uh my fear and my resentment and my feelings of guilt and um In taking over this incredibly busy practice, I'm confronted every day with people who are in recovery at various stages, many of them not in recovering but wanting to be, and uh, I am rendered humble and helpless on a daily basis by so many people, and uh, I don't have the kind of power I had in corporate medicine. I don't have the kind of power I had in the military where I could just descend on people and do interventions, and they really didn't have a choice about whether they are going into treatment or not. And you know, I only have my understanding of the program and recovery to offer people now and can only give them suggestions, and it's entirely up to them whether they follow them or not. And that, for me, is a really humbling experience and has helped me a lot in understanding my own recovery and accepting my own shortcomings. The other thing that's happened this year is uh, my mother died. And, uh, you know, I lived for that day that my mother would die and that I would be free of that pain. And that hold and that grip that she had on me. And yet after her death, I find that I'm, I'm, I've been immersed in fear because I'm an orphan now. I have nowhere to go. I have no parents anymore. I have no home. Somebody said that home is the place where you go where you'll never be turned away. And I have nowhere to go for that anymore. Except of course I do. I have this room. I have AA. But I forget that and uh, it was quite a shock for me that I would be full of fear after my mother da- died and I've been struggling with that lately. She just died in March and uh, I'm praying on a regular basis for my higher power to remove remove that fear and, and uh, it, it is working and it's uh, been quite an eye-opener for me and the third thing that's happened this year is my daughter that who's now 23, the one that I shared the the attic with so many years ago that we were locked away together um, she's had a lot of ups and downs through her life understandably, with the dysfunctional uh family that she was raised in. Um and uh she's joined Al Anon this year. She came to live with me for a year and she's uh she's joined Al Anon and um just the other night I finally did a proper step nine with her and made amends for all of the things that um that I had done and the ways that I had behaved as a mum. Um, during her life and it was an incredible release and uh of course i thought i'd done amends with her for a long time because i'd learned how to be a good mum now i was doing all the right things but i never really sat down and told her about my feelings i never really sat down and got honest with her and uh, i was required to do that now because she's joined al anon and she's in her own 12 step program and she knows what those steps are and she confronted me but when was I going to do a step nine with her <laughs> and of course I was busy saying well I've gone through the steps four times now aren't I wonderful <laughs> So um you know this is uh this is where I am right now in recovery it seems like the, uh, the 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 longer that I'm in AA the more I realize that I've got so much more to learn and so much more to understand and Mostly so much more to accept in myself and the people around me. So um, I have no idea what time it is, but I'm sure it's time for me to stop stop and let uh, David speak. But I'd like to thank you for the opportunity of sharing and for the opportunity of being here. Thanks for my sobriety.
1: Next speaker is David T. Thanks,
0: <laughs> well, thanks very much, David and Mary. Um, pull this up a little bit. That's better. My name is David, and I am an alcoholic and a drug addict. Hi, everybody. Um, I got all dressed up for this. As you can see, I figured maybe I should put on something nice. And maybe I should make some notes. I'll let you know that I really don't know what I'm going to talk about or what's going to come out of my mouth. But it dawned on me that this is a talk and it's not a speech. That in AA we give talks. And, uh, so I thought, well, I'll just try to let go of this and let it happen as it happens. But, uh, What I'd like to talk about is what it was like, what happened, and focus on what it's like now, and focus on the title, (laughs) the people, places, and things that are part of my recovery and part of the barriers to my recovery. Uh, What it was like, Uh, I was born in an alcoholic family in 1940, had a dad who also was a rageaholic, and I grew up the oldest of seven kids, uh, as sort of the hero. I was the guy who went to the military high school, even though my folks wanted me to go to the public high school across the street, I wanted to get on the bus and go 15 miles so I could wear a uniform and be a cadet. I was really into it. And, uh, I found that, uh, as, uh, we had some difficulties in our family, and my mother had to be hospitalized several times. That, being the head kid in charge, I learned that one way to control people was the way that my dad controlled us, and that is with rage. It worked beautifully, and yeah, uh, you know, I got what I needed. And not only that, it was a wonderful mood-altering event. I, you know, I could get that nice adrenaline trip out, ragey high, and that sort of became a pattern for me. Uh, when I was 15 years old, first time I recollect drinking, I was with my buddy Wayne. I was 14, I should say. It was an October night, and we each drank two cans of warm Grain beer. That was a Minneapolis brew. We drank that on the junior high practice field. It was a crisp, starry night, and... Uh, I went home, I smoked a cigarette first with Wayne, chewed some gum, said hi to my parents, went up to my room, was going to study geometry, but didn't really feel like it, just sat there. And I can recall (laughs) that day when I was 14 and drank those two beers with with clarity, And yet nothing really happened. I just wanted to sort of think about that. And the next time I recall drinking, I blacked out, passed out, threw up the next day, lied about what I was doing, and went through all of the things that alcoholics do. And I decided at that point, knowing what alcoholics were, that I was not going to be one, because I was a bright guy, and I was sort of in control and in charge, so I was going to learn how to count my drinks, which I I think I did after a fashion, so I became sort of a controlled drinker through those years that I was in college and I was in medical school. And uh, when I finished my internship and went in the Air Force in 1966, I had a great, uh, I should say 67, I had a great sense of uh, accomplishment that I had sort of held it together and now I had captain's bars on my shoulders and uh a regular paycheck. And I could now sort of let, you know, throw caution to the wind. And I did. And I began to drink the way that I wanted to drink. And I was regularly confronted uh, about my behavior and about my drinking. And being a very controlled fellow and uh determined not to become an alcoholic like so many people in my family were, I then uh, solved that problem by uh, shooting Talwin, and that seemed like a perfectly logical thing for me to do, uh, and I found that I became sort of uh, concerned about respiratory depression because I was shooting so much Talwin, and so I read the detail literature, and it said if you have respiratory depression problems, a little Ritalin helps. So I began shooting Ritalin prophylactically with the Talwin to prevent respiratory depression. And by the time I got out of the Air Force and I had just gotten out, uh, barely gotten out, without getting into serious trouble, uh, in 1969 and I entered family practice, I found in a few months that I was asking a psychiatrist, the only psychiatrist who came to our little community, to... Uh, sit down and talk to me because I was getting concerned about myself. And he said, what's the problem? And I said, well, I think that I've developed an obsessive compulsive disorder. And he said, really? He said, what What do you mean by that? And I said, well, I have an obsession with drugs and I have a compulsion to put them in my veins. He says, oh, he says, you're a drug addict. I said, oh, no. (laughs) I said, I don't use any addicting drugs. And at that time, Talwin and and Ritalin were not scheduled, so I felt that I definitely was not a drug addict. What I failed to tell him as I was discussing all this with him is that I had both of my legs wrapped in ACE bandages because I had run out of veins and had induced phlebitis in both of my legs. I was spending as much time as I could in the bathtub trying to to treat my phlebitis. But I didn't. I guess he didn't have to even know that to know how distorted my thinking had become. Because after he listened to my story, he said, "You know what? I I really would like you to do is to uh, instead of taking the talwin and the riddle, and I would like you to take this stuff." And he gave me a prescription for Stelazine. And, <laughs> and you know, I I followed directions. I thought, "Gee, you know, maybe this is some pretty good stuff." But it sort of gave me the feeling like that there were three feet of jello between me and the rest of the world, you know. (laughs) And I didn't like that feeling particularly, so I, uh, but I was a good patient and I went to this guy for three years and, uh, I, I lied to him at bargain rates, you know, 35 bucks an hour back then. And, uh, after a while I started to get well. You know, uh, You'd say how did it go last week after our session i said great i said i went home i had a wonderful time i relaxed i had a few drinks uh talked to my wife and then took a nap you say oh that sounds nice well that was my version what i did was i went home and i poured three glasses full of gin i tossed them down had an argument with my wife threw the glass at her and passed out on the couch <laughs> but I just changed a few things. And it went on like that. At any rate, by 1974, um, I'd gotten to the point where, and I've heard my story told several times today, I'd gotten to the point where uh, I'd gone through uh narcotics, smoked a lot of pot, drank a lot of booze, drank a lot of beer, shot a lot of cocaine, and was... Um, suicidal, and at the end of my rope. And I went from the little town in Wisconsin where I was practicing to Minneapolis where there was a doctor who was, I understood, the only other addicted doctor in the whole world <laughs> who was in recovery, who gave lectures out at Hazelden and ran a recovery center at the Veterans Hospital. And I... It, explained to my wife that he would be willing to talk to her and she was going to go down and I decided to come along just to protect my good name. And this guy was artful and in about 15 minutes he had me in a pair of those Veterans Administration pajamas and one of those little seersucker (laughs) bathrobes. I I couldn't quite explain that, but there I was and um, I was in a treatment program. And, uh, I was sort of dazed. And the the guy in the room next to me, uh, was an attorney. And we started talking together because we were the only professionals. All the rest of these guys were, you know, production workers and so forth. We were an attorney and doctor. And so we started to share the things that we had in common. And we found something that very important that we had in common that none of the other patients had. Auditory hallucinations. I kept hearing, as I walked into this place, I kept hearing a phonograph playing the Grateful Dead singing Casey Jones. <laughs> now, I kept asking, Where's that music coming from? People say, Pardon me and, uh, well, this guy was listening to the Minneapolis police radio they were <laughs> they were talking about how they were going to cut him up in little pieces. <laughs> and wrapped them in newspaper and stuffed them in garbage cans throughout the city and they'd never be able to trace it. So So we had this this wonderful thing. At any rate I got I got uh after six weeks I got to the point of uh discharge. I went back home to Wisconsin and back in those days and I was a very lucky guy. They did not uh, take away my license and they did not put me in an extended program because they hadn't had a lot of experience at that point. Didn't know what to do. They let me go back to practice after a few months of furlough. And after a while I reapplied for my DEA the number which I surrendered and everything was fine and I got a sponsor and I went to meetings. My sponsor's name was L Whatever sobriety I had at that time was a direct result, I believe, of what Al put in my head in our at least weekly face-to-face meetings. And I, there weren't a lot of meetings around, but, uh, I also didn't really push it. I went to maybe one meeting a week and, uh, it was sort of rocky. It was not, uh, a time of, uh, abstinence sobriety for me. I kept, uh, yeah, kind of testing it every two or three months, it seemed. Um, but I had a notion of what being clean and dry was, and it was something that I wanted. L died in November of 1975. He was a cook on the Edmund Fitzgerald, went down in Lake Superior in a storm, and I was sort of shaky and that I just drifted off into the ozone, and I went back into treatment 1976. And uh, I remember before I went back, the last night that I used, we were supposed to sponsor a party, a New Year's Eve party for RAA Club. And they came over to our house, all my buddies in AA. And I had been drinking for four or five days. And I was intensely preoccupied with getting another drink. And I sort of had myself leveled out in between the drinks with a little Valium and whatever else I had around that had a little sedative property to it. And I tried to look good for the AA party and I called the hospital, a little hospital. I was four blocks away, and I talked to one of the nurses. I said, would you just give me a phone call about 9 o'clock, please? Thank you. And uh she did. And I answered the phone, and I said, oh, okay, thank you. So I hung up with a very concerned look on my face. And they said, you have to go? And I said, I'm afraid so. And I went over to my office where I had a pint of brandy stashed in the desk, and I drank the brandy. Um, sort of one drink at a time. I'd put the cap back on. I'd put it back in the desk. I had some sepacol samples there, and I'd rinse my mouth out with a Cipacol and spit that out. And then I would say, well, one more drink of brandy. I'd take another drink of brandy, and I'd take a little more Cipacol, spit that out. And after a while, I realized the brandy was getting a little low, and Cipacol bottles had 17% alcohol. said, gee, it's really a shame to spit this stuff out. (laughs) LAUGHTER so, I would have a brandy with a seat called chaser. <laughs> that was fine, you know and i people we got be about one o'clock in the morning, one thirty people had gone home and i I wandered back and, and i uh I don't remember much of that, but I remember when I woke up the next day that um I could have defecated through a screen door uh i <laughs> I had diarrhea and uh, that was from the SEPA call and I had stomach cramps and the only way I knew of, of addressing that problem was to take some tolling which I did and uh, there's all this brilliant thinking uh, and I wound up uh going back to treatment and what I'd done during that year and a half was I had inst- educated my partner so well in what this disease is that uh they knew exactly what to do and I got into a back into treatment. I came in this time knowing uh, for certain that I was an alcoholic and that my AA group could not keep me sober, that my willpower could not keep me sober, that the fear of losing my medical license could not keep me sober, and uh, I became very depressed and I would walk into my room on the fourth floor of that treatment center, and I would think about maybe taking a little bit of run and just kind of going out through that window to the parking lot below. I had that that, that notion in my head. And uh, while I was there, I guess uh, my counselor and my group sort of affirmed to me, it sounds like you got the first step finally, Dave. What are you going to do about the second step? And I, I didn't know. I read Bill's story again and again and again. And, uh, I tried to figure out that second step. There was a lady who worked at that treatment center who was an aide, who was sort of a funny lady, who had a laugh like Phyllis Diller, sort of, you know, frizzy, funny hair and real character. And I'm sitting there on the fourth floor of Miller Dwan, which is in Duluth, which overlooks Lake Superior. And I'm reading that Bill's story again and again. And she says, What's the problem? And I said, I'm having a hard time with the second step. And she says, What's the what's the problem with that? And I said, Well, I just can't seem to conceive of of a higher power. I mean, I've been a religious person all my life. I've went to parochial schools for sixteen years, but you know, all I can think of is a God that relates to me sort of like an oncoming foot relates to an ant like on the sidewalk, you know. (laughs) It's sort of impersonal and I'm bad and I deserve to get stepped on. And she said, well, she said, my higher power has a sense of humor. (laughs) With me, he'd have to. (laughs) I'm sorting through all this theology that I had in college and I'm... (laughs) I'm trying to make sense out of that, and I said, do you really mean it? And she said, yeah. She said, I really do. That my higher sounds, that my higher power does have a sense of humor. And she said, you can choose anything you want to be to be your higher power. And I got the notion, and I did, and I asked Al, my sponsor, who was dead, if he wouldn't mind being my higher power. I asked my higher power if he wouldn't mind looking like Al. And talking like Al. Because everything that came out of Al's mouth was a big book. When Al was with me. And so I started talking to Al, and it worked. And I had—I began to have these strange experiences where I began to believe that my life was being guided by a power greater than myself, and things happened that I could not otherwise explain. And I'm sure that they're all coincidence, and I'm sure that these things have been happening to me from the time that I was born, but now I began to look at them in a different light. And I would be having a lot of problems I'd be driving through the woods of northern Wisconsin and I'd go past a bar or something and I'd start stinking thinking and I'd turn on the radio and there came the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> um, and it was like Al was talking to me. And that, that became very much a part of my belief system. And now i be, you know, I believed all that stuff that I was thinking about. I'm not really a drug addict. <laughs> I'm not using addicting drugs, and I believed all that stuff about well, the sipa has got alcohol in it. I believed all that distorted thinking, but now I started to wonder if I wasn't getting a little touched. But I tell people in AA about this stuff, and they'd say, "Hey, great, sounds like you're starting to get it." Well, recovery went on. Things happened in my life. Uh, I went into addiction medicine. Um, I uh, had a falling out with some people that I was working with. I felt terrible. I prayed hard. I got a wonderful job. I went to Wichita, Kansas, where I worked for thirteen years as a medical director at a big treatment program. It was a great joy to me, a great joy in my life. I had uh, healing with my family and with my children, and IDAA became a very much very much a part of that healing process first meeting I came to was in 1977 in New York and then in 1978 I came to Detroit and with each meeting I would make great discoveries I would run into somebody that I hadn't seen for years that was in my class or somebody I knew in the military and I would find something that would click and I got so enthusiastic about these meetings we made them a family affair we brought our kids to IDAA every year. And, you know, it, this ain't cheap, mean I remind you. <laughs> but it was worth it. It was worth sort of, you know, planning this trip and saving up for it and coming to it. And It was a wonderful time. The kids looked forward to it. I could never make amends to my kids for all of the crazy things that I did, all the crazy abusive things as a raging, addicted dad. Um, but they discovered alateen here, and they took that home, and they became active in alateen. Um, the hardest thing to talk about, and I, I I know you'll let me have my feelings right now, is with my son John. Who last came to IDAA in Minneapolis and uh I believe eighty four and died in eighty five of uh a brain tumor when he was sixteen. Um, and coming to these meetings has been very touching because of those Those particular memories, and it's, of course, the sense of loss mixed with a sense of gratitude and a sense of awe for what this program is, because here I found what I needed at that time, and I developed a beautiful, intimate relationship with John during that year and a half. And he had his program in Alateen and I had my program in AA. And that was beautiful. (laughs) After that, after that loss, I began to throw myself more and more into work with adolescents that build an empty place. Karen and I took on exchange kids. We, we had four exchange students, all lovely kids. Really enjoyed them. Uh, after a few years of grieving, I began to be aware that I was starting to lose touch with something in my life. I felt like I was becoming re-addicted. I wasn't using, but I believe that I began to use work as my drug. And as I threw myself more and more into my work, uh, I began to get more and more out of touch with myself. And uh, this culminated, I think, in me getting to be a real out of touch guy who wasn't very effective. At a time when addiction medicine was undergoing some real intense reorganization and difficulties, and uh, my fifth hospital administrator, after being in a place for 13 years and putting my heart and soul into it, invited me to to leave, and it was a good thing, and I'm I'm grateful today uh, for that. I took some time out of my life I took five months off it's a real pleasurable thing to do for me in a way but also very painful because it was five months of detoxifying from work and five months where I had to ask myself who am I what makes me count because ever since I was a little kid I've always been looking for things to make me count to be the achiever to be the caretaker And when I got that magic, that grain belt beer, that made me count. And the needle made me count. It gave me power. That made me count. And I got very hooked in my work addiction on things. And who I am in terms of how much money I make, in terms of how many people I control, in terms of what kind of rank I've got on my shoulder. And I couldn't see it. Um, I think I can see it now. This morning, to give you an example, we have a car. In the shop, and we've been having problems with his car. And we left it with, in a garage, and we said, when we get to Vancouver, we're gonna call you and see what you're gonna do with the car. So we called this morning. I just got upset. And obsessed. And angry. This morning, I made an unconscious decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of a Volvo. <laughs>
2: now
0: that's distortion. That's distorted thinking. It's a little milder than the distorted thinking of drinking Cipacol. <laughs> but that's distorted thinking. And I have, uh, have seen a lot of distorted stuff going on in my life, in my recovery, in terms of the people, the places, and the things, kinds of addictions. Um, <clears throat> listening to uh, a Joseph Conrad tape the other night. And uh, one of the things I did when I was off was I read a lot of Joseph, uh, or Joseph Campbell, I should say, Joseph Campbell tape. Joseph Campbell, and he's he's telling this little story to illustrate a point. And it's, uh, he's talking about uh, clergymen uh, who are debating the morality of abortion, they're talking about when does life really begin and the Catholic priest says life begins at conception and a minister says, well, life actually begins at about 12 weeks of gestation. And a rabbi says, no, no, life begins when the last child graduates from college. But that's kind of how I feel right now in my life. I kind of feel like I've done a lot of the things that I've set out to do and have wanted to do, and I certainly have all of the all of the comforts that I need, and I have all of the security that I need. And what I really want to do is is do things for myself, not in a self-centered, self-aggrandizing way, but do things for myself in terms of a a way of spiritual growth. In my moments of sanity now, what makes me count is that I am you. That my story is your story and your story is my story and my sobriety is your sobriety. That's what makes me count. When I listen to you tell your story, when I listen to Dave and Mary tell their stories, that's my story. My consciousness really isn't in here, it's out there. I'm a participant in that. That's what makes me count, is to be a member of the human race, to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, to be a member of IDAA, to be a member of this meeting. That's what makes me count. That's, uh, that's beautiful. Thank you.